there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. You know what my topic is this morning. It's suffering is not for nothing. And Sarah Hampson asked me this morning, why the two negatives? And I do know better than to put two negatives if I'm trying to emphasize the negative, but in this case, I'm trying to emphasize the positive. Sometimes people say to me, tell me stories of awful things that have happened in their lives or the lives of people they love. And then they say, it doesn't make any sense. What good could that possibly do? And I'm sure all of us have been tempted to ask that question from time to time. What I'd like to try to point out from the scriptures today is that suffering is never for nothing. God always has a purpose, and God's purposes are always love, because God is love, and he can have no purpose that does not spring from that great ocean of love, which is his nature. Let me give you what I think is about as comprehensive and simple a definition of suffering as I can think of. Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Now that covers every imaginable kind of trouble. If you can think of some kind of trouble that doesn't fall under those to one of those two categories, well, please let me know. But I think that it covers everything, everything in this world that about which our instant and automatic reaction would be, oh no. There are a lot of things that happen that we would never really call suffering, and yet I really can't think of another word to replace it. Trouble, tribulation, trials, um, adversity, difficulty, affliction. I've put them all under the category of suffering, and yet I want to try to show that absolutely anything about which our, negative, our immediate reaction is a negative one, such as missing a plane or the washing machine quitting when you have a house full of guests or burning the roast when the boss is coming for dinner, anything about which you just say, oh no, I think we need to learn that suffering is not for nothing. God has a plan in all of those things, no matter how seemingly trivial at the moment. And Jesus says in John 16:33, and you may take this as sort of the theme verse for today, he was speaking with his disciples and preparing them for his departure. And he knew that this was going to be a very great sorrow for them and that they were going to be very upset by the fact that he was going to leave them and go where they could not come. And he has been giving them previews of coming attractions, telling them that they would be treated in the same way that he had been treated. If they didn't listen to me, they won't listen to you. If they hated me, they, hated, they will hate you. And he says at the end of this chapter, I have told you all this so that in me you may find peace. 
in the world, you will have trouble. But courage, the victory is mine, I have conquered the world. So here we have another one of those amazing paradoxes of which the Gospels are loaded. Trouble, tribulation, affliction, and peace. The two things together. I have told you all this so that, not in the world, but in me, you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Jesus could never be accused of false advertising. He made it crystal clear at the very beginning of his ministry that anyone who wanted to follow him must give up his right to himself and take up his cross and follow. And if we imagine that the taking up of a cross is going to be a bed of roses, we haven't read the Gospels very carefully and we haven't lived very long, I think. But let's remember that at the same time, simultaneously with the trouble, we may have that peace that God gives us. Because in him, in my Lord Jesus Christ, is all that I could ever possibly want or need. Now how can I come to the knowledge of this? Well, let's look at the scriptures again. Think of that faithful servant Job. Probably the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And we really don't know a whole lot about this man's background. We just know that he was a very wealthy man with many possessions and God called him a blameless man. And you remember that there was a mysterious scene that took place in heaven when Satan actually presented himself among the sons of God in the courts of heaven and challenged God on the subject of faith. What does faith mean? And God called Satan's attention to his servant Job. Here is a man of faith, God was saying, and Satan said, well, with very good reason. Look what's, what Job has got. You've given him everything. Why wouldn't he trust you? Whereupon God said, all right, you may have permission to take away what he's got, and then we'll see. And you remember that Job lost virtually everything. His flocks and his herds and his servants and his family and his house and his possessions, his money, and even the confidence of his wife. And she was so furious with God because of these events, these disasters, she said, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job continued throughout all his afflictions, sitting there on his ash heap, covered with boils, scraping the boils with a piece of broken pottery, continued to trust God. But, you know, we, talk, we hear about the patience of Job, but Job was very, very honest with God and very straightforward. And he says, for example, uh, in chapter 3, after he broke the silence, his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, had come to, the, to see him when they heard about these calamities. And when they first saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. They wept aloud. They rent their cloaks and tossed dust into the air over their heads. For seven days and seven nights, they sat beside him on the ground, and none of them said a word, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job broke the silence 
and didn't say God is wonderful. He said he cursed the day of his birth, perished the day when I was born and the night which, is, which said a man is conceived. Why was I not stillborn? Why did I not die when I came out of the womb? Then I should be lying in the quiet grave, asleep in death, at rest. Why is life given to men who find it so bitter? Why should a man be born to wander blindly, hedged in by God on every side? And on and on for many chapters, there's the dialogue between Job and his friends. And Job very honestly expresses his complaints and his feeling of innocence, that he didn't deserve all this that came upon him. And his friends, of course, dished out perfectly logical theological advice, which you can't find any fault with. Uh, theologically, and yet in the end, of course, no one was able to answer Job's questions. And God then began to snow him with questions. Who is this whose ignorant words cloud my design in darkness? This is God's first question when he answers Job out of the tempest. Brace yourself and stand up like a man. I will ask questions and you shall answer. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who settled its dimensions? Who stretched the measuring line over it? Who set its cornerstone in place? Have you seen the gates of death? Do you know how the stars of the navigator's line go out one by one? Did you know that verse was in the Bible? That's Job 38, verse 15 in the New English Bible. And God asks Job all these questions, and Job has already said, if, if I were to ask God a thousand questions, he wouldn't even answer one of them. And of course, Job did ask, ask God about a thousand questions. And so then Job, God, in his turn, begins to question Job. And Job submits in the end. And he says, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose is beyond thee. But I have spoken of great things which I have not understood, things too wonderful for me to know. I knew of thee then only by report, but now I see thee with mine own eyes. Therefore I melt away and repent in dust and ashes. The revelation of who God was sprang from Job's desolation. And here we already see that suffering is not for nothing. What's it worth to you and to me to know God? It's worth everything. It's worth everything that we are and have and suffer to know him. And of course we would want to say, but isn't there another way? And the Bible shows us that the answer is no. You're all familiar with the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not because there isn't any. There's a lot of evil in the world, isn't there? He doesn't say, I 
when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is no evil. He says, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. And it is in those darkest valleys that God reveals himself in ways that we could not have known him otherwise. And I'm sure that there are many here this morning that could testify to that. It has been in your deepest sorrow and suffering that you have come to know God. And what about Paul? Paul in Philippians 3 speaks of suffering the loss of everything. He said, I count everything sheer loss because all is far outweighed by the gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I did, in fact, lose everything. I count it so much garbage for the sake of gaining Christ and finding myself incorporate in him with no righteousness of my own, no legal rectitude, but the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ. And I think I'll be referring to that passage again before I finish. But for those of you that would like to take notes, let me give you four things that you can write down. Four reasons for suffering. And you've already heard the first one, that I may know him. In other words, you can just put down the word knowledge if you like, the knowledge of God. The second is trust. The third is obedience. And the fourth is fruitfulness. Knowledge, trust, obedience, and fruitfulness. And there are many more. How many times have you perhaps said yourself or heard somebody else say, well, you know, these, these terrible things happen and we really don't understand why. Well, it's true that we don't understand the deepest philosophical and theological question as to why God permitted the existence of evil in a world that he could have made perfect. Surely it lies deep in the mystery of sin, which was uh, the mystery, let's say, first of all, it, it lies deep in the mystery of God's giving Adam and Eve freedom. He created creatures that were capable of defying him. The wind doesn't defy him. The tides never defy him. The clams, the giraffes, do exactly what God created clams and giraffes and winds and tides to do. Obedient. But God created us with the power to choose good or evil. And Adam and Eve chose evil and there's been sin and destruction in the world. So we really don't understand by any means all that's connected with that. But we do know that the scripture gives us reason after reason after reason and illustrates it in the lives of biblical characters why we must suffer. And you've got four of them here, just four. There are at least 40 or so that I think I've listed in my book called A Path Through Suffering. Now when I was 12 years old, I made a total commitment of my life to Jesus Christ. I had made a public profession for salvation when I heard a very scary sermon when I was 10 years old on John 3.3, you must be born again, and I wasn't sure I was born again. And so I made that decision then that I wanted to be born again. 
And it wasn't until I was about 12 that it dawned on me that if Jesus Christ was my savior, then he had to be Lord of my life, which means a total transfer of my will over to God and a willing reception in exchange of his will for me. And I prayed that God would do that, that he would teach me to do his will, that he would help me to learn to know him, and that he would work out his will in my life at any cost. And if that seems rather incredible to some of you that a 12-year-old girl would take that kind of a decision, let me just say, don't ever underestimate the spiritual discernment of your children. I really believe that practically all the time they are way ahead of what we think they are. And if we don't expect very much of them, we won't get very much. They live up to expectations. If we expect teenagers to be rebellious and impossible to get along with, they will live up to that expectation. They will be rebellious and impossible to get along with. But I do think that God holds us responsible. And I was keenly conscious at the age of 10 that I was responsible before God. And I can remember telling myself, these grown-ups don't know what's going on in my head. They don't know. But I know that God is speaking to me. And so I made that commitment and God began to answer the prayer. Now I didn't realize it at the time and I can look back and see how in all kinds of ways God began the process of teaching me to know him which I had asked for. Now I'm not going to go through all of my uh, various experiences in that but it was when I was in college and a senior that I began to deal with probably what is the crucial question in the life of any young person of that age. The question of my love life. I didn't have any. <laughs> and I desperately wanted a husband and marriage. Now God, I knew, was calling me to be a foreign missionary. There wasn't any question in my mind about that, and I was thrilled. But I began to view this long, lonely future, which might get much lonelier if I lived in a thatch roof hut in the jungle somewhere, which is what I thought all missionaries ought to do. And uh, so I began to talk with God about the possibility of a husband. There wasn't anybody on my horizon. There never had been. I was very much of a wallflower in high school and college. There had been one or two boys that were interested in me in a mild way, but it wasn't reciprocated particularly. And they were not, uh, they didn't fulfill the 16 qualifications I had written down in the back of my <laughs> diary when I was about 16 years old. I'm not sure if it was 16 or 20 or whatever, but you know, there was quite a long list there of what I had to have. And uh, I didn't know anybody that fulfilled all those. So I began to talk to God about whether it could possibly be part of his will that I should be an old maid missionary. Now I knew many missionaries. That was one of the great privileges of growing up in the kind of home I grew up in. We entertained all the time because my parents took seriously the biblical injunction, show hospitality without grudging. 
I love Philip's translation there, show hospitality without wishing you hadn't got to. <laughs> and um, we had many missionaries, hundreds of missionaries. I think my mother's guest book has 42 countries represented and something like 24 different nationalities. So I knew quite a few old maid missionaries and they were wonderful people, but I didn't really relish the idea of being one of those. And because I grew up in a happy home, I was hoping that God would give me a husband and a large family, and I was praying about that. And saying, Lord, could you just give me a hint as to whether or not you have a husband for me? Well, what do you think God usually says when we want previews <laughs> of what's coming? To me, he practically always says, trust me. Tomorrow is really none of your business. Today is your business. I want you to do the thing that I've given you to do today, and I want you to do it faithfully, humbly, thoroughly, with all your heart for me. And if you do it faithfully, humbly, thoroughly, with all your heart for me, you can trust me to guide you tomorrow. But Lord, I don't have to know tomorrow, but I really don't like the idea of going to Africa all by myself. Um, could you just deign to, to let me know that maybe there might be somebody? And the Lord reminded me of the prayer that I had prayed when I was 12 years old, transferring my will to His and asking for His will to be done. And so He said, whose will did you ask for? Well, yours, Lord. And how many of us have prayed that prayer so glibly, perhaps, and thoughtlessly? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Without ever stopping to think that if we pray that, the chances are very good that my will is going to have to be undone. Thy will be done. I don't know what God's kingdom involves. God is engineering a million things, millions of people. So when I pray my little private selfish prayer, Lord, would you just do this for me? He's saying, I'm engineering a universe. You have a place there, but you don't know whether that place involves marriage or singleness. Will you trust me for this? Well, what could I say? I rescind the prayer that I prayed at 12? No. I just said, okay, yes, Lord, um, I will trust you. You're going to have to help me. I'm not really very good at this. Help me to trust you. But I had offered my desire, my unfulfilled desire to God. Well, guess what? When you offer your desire for something to God, when there really doesn't look as though there's any physical or human possibility that that desire was going to be fulfilled anyway, it's really hypothetical, isn't it? It's like that old gospel song that we used to sing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than to be the king of a vast domain. How many of us ever have that option? <laughs> you know, we can easily sing a song like that because nobody is offering us silver or gold or to be the potentate of a vast domain. And so when I said, Lord, I will surrender to you my desire for a husband, 
there wasn't anybody visible on my horizon. But right after I prayed that prayer, suddenly I found myself falling in love with a certain man on the campus that about 100, 100 other girls were falling in love with, too. He was particularly interesting to all of us. For one thing, he was very visible. He was what we used to call a BMOC, a big man on campus, <laughs> or a BTO, a big time operator. And I was a TWO, a teeny weeny operator. <laughs> not very visible, not popular. And here was this guy that was extremely handsome, very popular, very visible. He was the president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship, very spiritual. We knew he was headed for the foreign mission field. He was on the student council. He was a champion wrestler, won the championship of four states in his class, and he was a Greek scholar, and he graduated summa cum laude in classical Greek. An interesting combination. And the other thing that really piqued our curiosity was that Jim Elliott never dated anybody. So we took it for granted that he was a woman hater, and that made him all the more fascinating to all of us. <laughs> and there were a lot of girls that did their very level best to draw his attention and his eye, but my mother had taught me two things which I still think are very wise rules to go by, and I have given them to probably thousands of young people, young women, she said when I was about 12 years old, do not ever chase boys. And number two, keep them at arm's length. <laughs> well, those are very safe rules. God never made us women to be the initiators and to do the wooing. And all these tragic stories of people getting pregnant and saying, well, you know, I really don't know how it happened. Well, it happens the same way every time. It will not happen if you keep them at arm's length. And Paul said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So there's all this huggy-poo stuff and touchy-feely stuff going on, and then everybody wonders what happened. So my mother had told me not to chase boys, and I tried to not by so much as a flicker of an eyelash to let Jim Elliott know that I was one of the girls that was interested in him. But when, his, when the yearbooks came out, it was, it was quite a long line of girls waiting for Jim's autograph on his picture, and I joined that line. I think I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but I was certainly hoping with great trepidation that Jim would sign not only his name, but maybe something else. And he did sign his name and a scripture reference. Well, it didn't take me very long to grab my Bible and find 2 Timothy 2.4. The message was unexpected, but very clear. He said, a soldier, this is the words of the scripture there, the soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. <laughs> he must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. And in addition to all the things that I liked about Jim Elliot, that was the most important. Here was a man who had literally made one irrevocable lifetime choice, that Jesus Christ was his commanding officer. And he was letting me know that neither I nor anybody else nor anything was going to deflect him from the pursuit of that course. But just before I graduated, Jim confessed to me that he was in love with me. And then 
followed that stunning announcement with a shattering announcement, which was that as far as he knew, God was calling him to be single, perhaps for the rest of his life. Now, he wasn't sure about that, but he felt that the pioneer missionary work into which he was going in South America might require a bachelor. And so he was willing to be that bachelor. Now, I haven't got time to go into all the details of this story. It's a very long story, but it is in my book called Passion and Purity. And we talked about this, and we surrendered our love for each other to God and decided that we would absolutely leave it there. He said, I'm not asking you to marry me. I'm not even going to ask you to wait for me. He said, I know you're going to Africa. You go to Africa. I'm going to South America. And if God wants to bring us together, he can. The chances were nil, humanly speaking. I lived in New Jersey, Jim in Oregon. I was going to Africa, I thought, and he was going to South America. And I, I, had gradu I was graduating within a couple of weeks, and he had another year to go. So the chances of our paths ever crossing again seemed to be zero. But it was in that agonizing experience of unfulfilled longing, unfulfilled hopes, unanswered prayers, but of course there are no such things as unanswered prayers. No is an answer, isn't it? That I got acquainted with Jesus Christ in a way that would not have been possible without that particular kind of suffering. Now, I don't know what agony you might be in this morning that comes under that category of unfulfilled desire. But I don't think God is necessarily going to answer your prayers that God will give you that particular thing or that particular person. We don't know that he's going to because God knows what's best. And the very best thing for any of us is that we should learn to know him. That he would have the opportunity to reveal his character to us in order that we may love him and worship him. Suffering is not for nothing. It was five and a half years of uncertainty and separation and silence and no communication not all of those five years, but we, we did start writing later. But the distance between us was very great. And finally, I did end up in Ecuador and working in the western jungle with a tribe of Indians called the Colorados. And Jim was working in the eastern jungle with a tribe called the Quechuas. And there were two ranges of Andes between us. And it took six weeks to get a letter in one direction. In all of that time, God was revealing himself to me, teaching me to trust him to know him, to love him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul speaks of his own suffering. He says, We should like you to know, dear friends, how serious was the trouble that came upon us in the province of Asia. The burden of it was far too heavy for us to bear, so heavy that we even despaired of life itself. 2 Corinthians 1, now I'm on verse 9, verse 8. Indeed, we felt in our hearts that we had received a death sentence. 
Now get this, this was meant to teach us not to place reliance on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This was meant to teach us. Well, that's number two. There's no way to learn to trust God without having the props knocked out. I wanted to put my dependence and to offer my love to a human being. I wanted the security of a husband and the possibility of a home and a family. And God was saying, trust me. I will never withhold what's good. And one of the verses that held me like a rock during those five and a half years was Psalm 84:11. no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And so I began to understand that my job was simply to walk uprightly, just follow one step at a time wherever the shepherd leads. And sometimes it'll be still waters and green pastures, and sometimes it may be the valley of the shadow of death, but I have a shepherd. And do you ever imagine that the shepherd is going to allow the sheep to get lost if the sheep wants to follow in the shepherd's path? The shepherd is much more interested in getting us where we ought to be than we are in getting there. And I certainly was eager to get where God wanted me to be. That was a decision that was not negotiable. And so he led me. The third reason for suffering, obedience. And I want to read you a letter that came via my radio program. This lady says, for nearly nine years, I have been married to an unbeliever. We love one another dearly, and he's an excellent husband and father, but of course, as you know, there will always be a spiritual division until he accepts Jesus into his heart. Without benefit of the Holy Spirit and our obedience to him, we can all be pretty miserable and irritating. The Holy Spirit is alive in me, but I was not willing to be obedient much of the time. Therefore, carnality reigned, fleshliness, just our ordinary, natural human selves are carnal, aren't they? Carnality reigned. Whenever my husband or daughter would do or say something irritating, my quick, hot temper was always ready to respond immediately. And then, of course, they would become even more irritating. Surprise, surprise. Finally, through prayer and listening to mature Christians, I began to see that I was the source of much of this discontent. So I began asking God to bless me with self-control and to give me the proper responses. This was not easy. Often I found myself gritting my teeth to keep my mouth shut, but I'm always thankful that I did and still do. It took me a long time to get into the habit of looking to him as soon as I sensed anger. My husband is still unsaved, but as a result of my own obedience, he is much easier to live with. <laughs> His heart has softened considerably, and I see many subtle changes in him, changes that tell me he will ultimately come to Christ. Unfortunately, it is always easier for us to take the soulish path because there's no quick fix. 
But there's an old saying, when you get sick and tired of it, you'll do something about it. When I finally reached that point of realizing I could only work on myself and my own relationship with God, the turning point arrived. And the blessings that have followed have been such a wonderful encouragement. By the way, lest I sound puffed up, let me assure you that I still have many hurdles of obedience to overcome. But he has certainly shown me that with perseverance, these areas of disobedience can truly be conquered one by one. And the passage, of course, that she is referring to is 1 Peter 3, in which Paul speaks directly to a woman who is married to an unbeliever or to a husband who may claim to be a Christian but is not really acting like one. And he says in that chapter, you in the same way, referring to the way slaves are to submit to their masters, you women must accept the authority of your husbands, so that if there are any of them who disbelieve the gospel, they may be won over without a word being said by observing the chaste and reverent behavior of their wives. Your beauty should reside not in outward adornment, but in the gentle, quiet spirit, which is of high value in the sight of God. And it sounds to me as though God is giving that woman something which is not natural to any of us, as far as I can tell, a gentle and quiet spirit. Is it natural to any of you? May I see your hands? <laughs> it just doesn't seem to come naturally. She suffered, and some of you suffer, living with a man who either is not a Christian and not on your wavelength spiritually, and may be giving you a very hard time, or he may just be indifferent, or you may be living with a man who claims to be a Christian and does all the things outwardly, like going to church and all that stuff, but your marriage is not what you would think of as a Christian marriage, and he may not be taking the responsibilities of a Christian husband. Now, we cannot change our husbands. And I speak from a, the experience of having three. I'm very thankful that I now have number three along with me, and I hope he outlasts me by a long time. But God has given me three very different men, and I have to confess there were little things in each of them that I would like to have changed. And the Lord is still saying to me, you're the one I want to change. You are not your husband's moral custodian. Leave him to me and keep your mouth shut and back off. And the psalmist said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted in order that I might learn thy statutes. So God gives us all kinds of situations in which the message that he is giving us in that still, small voice, if we would just shut up and listen, is, I want you to obey me. I want you to do the thing that I'm asking you to do. You can't change him. You can't change that awful woman that you have to work with. You can't change that intractable teenager. But of course, a parent is in the position to try to. In we are responsible for our children in a way that we're not responsible for that terrible woman you work with or that dear husband that you live with. And the fourth reason why we suffer is fruitfulness. And we have that beautiful chapter John 15, about the vine and the branches. 
And Jesus says, I am the vine, and my Father is the gardener. It is a huge comfort to me to just remember whatever is happening to me that my Father is the gardener. And those of you who know gardening and love gardening, you know that all you're interested in is doing the very best thing to make the plants and the flowers and the vegetables and the fruits the very best that you can make them. Well, what could our Heavenly Father, who is a gardener, want for you and me but fulfillment, perfection? We hear a lot about fulfillment nowadays, and the world is offering all sorts of ways of finding it, most of which are dead-end streets. But Jesus said, I'm the vine, my Father is the gardener, and you are the branches. And if you're going to produce good fruit, pruning is going to be necessary. And the suffering, the tribulation, even that little thing, which may happen the minute you get home this afternoon, is meant for fruitfulness. What kind of fruit does God want to produce in you and me? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. story is told of a lady who came up to a minister and she said, Oh, brother, pastor, please pray that God will make me more patient. And so the pastor put his arm on the lady's shoulder and he said, Oh, Lord, send this dear sister all kinds of tribulation. <laughs> and she said, Wait, that's not what I asked. And he said, The Bible says tribulation worketh patience. Well, I had another letter here that I wanted to read to you. How many minutes do I have, Lars? One, three. Okay, maybe I can get through it. This is from a lady who tells me that she is the black mother of five children. Her husband is ill. And she says, a burning, your writings have put in me a burning, consuming fire to give Christ all that I am. Elizabeth, I long to be obsessed, possessed, and consumed with him. I'm a 35-year-old black woman with five children. My husband had a massive stroke last September. You were a guest on such and such a program. I was on my way home from visiting him at the hospital. I tuned into the show. I got in the door just in the nick of time to phone the show, to phone in after the show had gone off the air. But the host asked if I would like to speak with you. I said yes, and I will never forget those few precious minutes. And it just happens that I talked to her about John 15. And of course, I have completely forgotten this incident. The doctors had given my husband 24 hours to live, and if he lived, they told me he would be a vegetable. Well, Elizabeth, he is the biggest walking, talking vegetable I have ever seen. <laughs> he was in a coma for close to two months, and his cognitive skills are not what they used to be, but he is doing fine. The neurologist says he was lucky. We say, thank you, Lord, for your tender mercy. He was an alcoholic. He came to Christ through the massive stroke. He will never be able to work again doing the work he used to do. He was our sole support. I cannot put into words the intense, fervent, and intimate love I felt for him who loves us as no one can love during our trial. It's kind of strange, but I treasure that particular time in my life. 
God stretched me beyond my wildest imagination, and I can say in all honesty that I knew no greater joy or peace than during that trial. In the world, you will have trouble. But courage, I tell you this so that in me you may have peace. Courage, I have overcome the world. Suffering is that we may know him, that we may trust him, that we may obey him, and that we may bring forth the fruit for which we are designed. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.